Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. สวัสดีครับ. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we come together as a community to study the words of the Buddha from the Pali Canon in English. Today we're starting with volume three of this book series, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. Volume three is titled Foundation in the Teachings. Here we're going to be discussing chapters 1 through 10. This book is available for you at no cost. It can be downloaded from our website, buddhadailywisdom.com. From there, just click on the button that says free books and you'll be able to download your version of this book. And then from there, you can take it and print it if you like. Or if you'd like to order a nicely printed book, you can order them from Amazon. All the students throughout the world have been studying these chapters 1 through 10 throughout the week and then we come together like this in order to do some meditation together to kind of prepare the mind for the class and then afterwards we will discuss these chapters having students read each chapter and then we will discuss them. Now two of the chapters that we're going to be studying today have actually been covered in the previous book in volume 2. There are some chapters throughout the book series that are show up in multiple places. And this is because these teachings relate to that specific topic of the book. And it's important that those chapters show up in the individual books related to that specific topic. And one of the best ways to actually learn and retain the teachings is through repetition. So you will see this in the Buddhist teachings that he oftentimes taught in repetition, saying some of the same things over and over, maybe slightly different ways. But also in this book series, you will see some chapters show up about two or three times at different points in the various books. So thank you all for being here for today's class. It's really wonderful to see you here. I see Miranda, Manal, Ali, Marcia, see uh, Holly, Amina, I see Judith, and I'm sure there's other people who are joining us across social media and our podcast as well. So welcome to all of you guys. If you guys would like to pull up a meditation cushion or a chair and get ready for meditation, we'll go ahead and do a short meditation and then move into studying chapters 1 through 10. So go ahead and take your position in the seated, lying, or standing position. And then just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. I'll just give you some light guidance because most of you I know should be meditating regularly if you're in this program. You're a little bit further along in your practice and you should be meditating about two or three times a day. 
So just breathe in through the nose, experiencing the nice full breath. And exhaling through the nose, experiencing the full exhale. Breathing in and out. Arahang Sammasamhoto Mahakavan Portang Mahakavan Hang Apivate Ami Savakato Mahakavata Tammo Dhamang Namasami Supatipano Mahakavato Savakasangho Sankhang Namami Napmorhasabhakavato Arahato Samasamputasa Napmorhasabhakavato Arahato Samasamputasa Napmorhasabhakavato Arahato Sammasamputasa Itipiso Mahakawa Arahang Sammasamoto Vichacharanang Sammono Sakato Rokavito Anutero Purisa Damasati Satatawa Manusanang Puto Pakawati Should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Wherever you observe that the mind is not on the breath, just cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath.
there as we do each week just to kind of prepare the mind for meditation as you guys are meditating at home I imagine you're doing closer to 30 minutes to really help train the mind this is not only a time to kind of prepare the mind for our class today to help retain the teachings better but also a nice way to kind of come together as a community and encourage and motivating each other on our path to enlightenment through meditating together that can be a really nice thing but of course you're not interested in the mind getting attached to meditating with people it needs to be an independent practice where we actively train the mind through our own independent journey so once again welcome to all of you guys we're going to be diving into chapters 1 through 10 today and the way that we do our class is the students will volunteer for reading the various chapters so I will turn things over to Manal and Basam to see who is going to be reading each chapter. And then after we read the chapter, I will share some teachings and then open things up for any questions that you guys have. Hello, Tishon. 
we have uh, Holly for chapter one. Great. One who points out treasure. Ananda, I shall not treat you as the potter treats the raw, damp clay. Repeatedly restraining you, I shall speak to you, Ananda. Repeatedly guiding you of what to avoid, I shall speak to you, Ananda. The truly dedicated will stand the test. Regard him as one who points out treasure, the wise one who, seeing your faults, guides you of what to avoid. Stay with this sort of teacher. For the one who stays with this teacher, with a teacher of this sort, things will get better, not worse. Perfect. Thank you, Holly. So I taught this chapter in the previous book, Volume 2, where this is how kind of Gautama Buddha used to share the teachings with his students. Rather than repeatedly restraining and trying to pull the practitioner back from doing certain harms, what the Buddha is saying is, I will guide you, essentially. You know, you are making your own decisions. You have your own free will here. You're making your own decisions. I'm not going to pull you back and constantly restrain you. I will just speak to you and guide you and point out the things to avoid. And the Buddha is calling those things treasures. So a teacher who is pointing out things for you to improve in terms of your maybe intentions, your speech, your actions, maybe if there's ego or arrogance or pride, maybe there's not enough loving kindness or compassion there. And a teacher will need to do this throughout your journey. And if you've chosen someone to be your teacher, then you would respect and seek guidance from this respected person. And then when they're sharing things with you, it should be done in a polite, kind, friendly, and respectful way to help you see the treasure. Because the teacher who's sharing these teachings should not be seeking any kind of benefit whatsoever for their life. A person who's sharing these teachings should be already enlightened or super, super close to that point. The Buddha himself talked about how it would be very difficult for someone to share these teachings as a teacher if there's craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, because how would you be able to share the path to enlightenment if you yourself haven't attained enlightenment? So anybody who has attained enlightenment and is sharing these teachings should be doing so just for the benefit of anybody who's choosing to learn and practice, not for their own benefit, because they would have already transcended any kind of craving, desire, attachment. They shouldn't want anything from the world. They shouldn't expect anything from their students. They should just be openly sharing with open arms to help all people. And they're not biased. They're not trying to hurt their students through sharing guidance. They're just trying to help them. So the Buddha is saying, you know, a teacher who's teaching in this way that's pointing out treasure to help you improve without any interest or in their own benefit, then stay with this sort of teacher because things only get better, not worse. It's also important to see here that the reason why the Buddha is not restraining his students and just guiding them and speaking to them is that this path to enlightenment is all about your own personal choices. If somebody's constantly restraining you, then the individual is not making wise choices. Their mind is running forward into unwholesome things, and it's somebody else that has to restrain you. So what this path is about is gaining wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline where you can control your own mind. You don't need anyone to restrain you. All you need is the wisdom of the teachings. Go learn those, reflect on those, and practice them in the world, and then you train your own mind to be restrained, and you practice that restraint on your own 
it's not the teacher's job or the role of the teacher to restrain their students. Instead, the teacher is there sharing guidance and teachings, and it's up to the students to then learn that and then restrain their own mind. This might also be a good time to talk about the choice of choosing a teacher. A teacher shouldn't be trying to force students into learning with them. If a teacher is trying to force students into learning with them, then they have craving, desire, attachment, and that wouldn't produce wholesome results if a student was to learn with somebody that has craving, desire, attachment. So students should be making a personal choice of learning with a particular teacher. And then through that personal choice, they're obviously seeing certain qualities in their teacher that they aspire to attain. And it's through that student choosing to learn with a teacher. And then with that politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect towards the teacher, the teacher also should have politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect towards their student. And this type of relationship becomes very beneficial for the student because the student's choosing to learn with the teacher. And then the student can also look to the teacher as a role model in terms of how to practice these teachings. Because as a teacher is teaching, not only should they be sharing things like right intention, right speech, right action, and loving kindness, compassion, generosity, all these other teachings, but they should be practicing them. So this is one of the ways that students actually learn and progress the best is not only through the resources that a teacher shares, not only through their discourses, not only through pointing out treasure, but also being a role model through a teacher actually practicing the teachings. And students oftentimes learn a significantly amount more through that role model and kind of observing their teacher's practice than they will maybe in an actual book. This is why the Buddhist students oftentimes lived side by side with him during his lifetime, because by living alongside of a person like that, you really absorb how they actually function in the world and you will see things that will benefit your life. So this is why living with a teacher is very common in the tradition for extended periods of time, or nowadays, since that may not be practical for most people, having retreats where people come together for five days, 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, kind of live side by side with their teacher for a while, or just go to the area where your teacher is and kind of spend time with them at different times, going out to eat, going to see tourist sites, going to see different things, you will kind of observe how your teacher functions in the world and you can observe more of their practice because there's only so much you can teach in a book or in a classroom that oftentimes just getting into the world and observing someone's conduct can be very beneficial for a student to absorb the teachings and see how to practice them in the world. This is what we talked about last week when the Buddha said, one who sees me sees the teachings. So if you lived during the lifetime of Gautama Buddha, he was a living, walking, breathing example of his teachings. And this helped his students to learn the teachings because they could observe how to practice them. So if you have that kind of experience where you can spend some time with a teacher in real life in the world, this can be really beneficial for your practice to observe how to conduct yourself as you try to implement more and more of these teachings into your life. Any questions on this chapter? Doesn't seem to be a question teacher for this one. Okay. 
So let's move on to chapter two. This is another chapter that was covered in the previous volume. So we'll just kind of look at it here, have someone read it, and then see what questions you guys have. Rare that one obtains the human state. Monks, suppose that this great earth had become one mass of water, and a man would throw a harness with a single pole upon it. An easterly wind would drive it westward, a westerly wind would drive it eastward, a northerly wind would drive it southward, a southerly wind would drive it northward. There was a blind turtle which would come to the surface once every hundred years. What do you think, monks, would that blind turtle coming to the surface once every hundred years insert its neck into that harness with a single hole? It would be very rare, venerable sir, that that blind turtle coming to the surface once every hundred years would insert its neck into that harness with a single hole. So too, monks, it is rare that one obtains the human state, rare that a tathagata, an arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, arises in the world, rare that the teachings and discipline proclaimed by the tathagata, I'm saying that wrong, I'm sorry, shines in the world. You have obtained that human state, monks. A tathagata, an arahant, a perfectly enlightened one has arisen in the world. The teachings and the discipline proclaimed by the tathagata shines in the world. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So this is a teaching where the Buddha is essentially sharing how rare it is for somebody to attain the human state because it's in the human state and in the heavenly realm as a heavenly being that beings can attain enlightenment. But it's the human state, the human realm that is the most ideal for beings to attain enlightenment because it's here that we experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So we tend to have a lot more motivation in order to eliminate those feelings and attain enlightenment. Where beings in the heavenly realm, they experience exclusively pleasant feelings and oftentimes lack the motivation to actually learn and practice to attain enlightenment. So even though pleasant feelings are still discontentedness, there's not the same motivation there because they're experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings. He goes on to talk about not just how rare it is that someone attains a human state, but also how rare it is that a Buddha, a fully perfectly enlightened one, a Tathagata, arises in the world. And during the lifetime of the Buddha, not only did people attain that human state, but they were existing in the lifetime of a actual fully perfectly enlightened one. And during the lifetime of a fully perfectly enlightened one, the teachings are going to shine in the world because a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha has deep, deep, profound wisdom about the teachings that lead to enlightenment because they attained enlightenment on their own. So therefore they have deep, profound wisdom of what it takes to attain enlightenment because they essentially invented enlightenment, for example. Even though they didn't, they discovered the path. So for example, if you had somebody that invented the automobile and you could learn directly from that person, the wisdom would be more penetrative than kind of like 300 people beyond the inventor who may not understand the inner workings of the automobile as the inventor would. So a Buddha is someone who's attained enlightenment on their own, 
without the help of anyone else. So their mind is perfectly enlightened, being unaffected by any teachings whatsoever from any outside source. So during the lifetime of a Tathagata or a Buddha or a fully perfectly enlightened one, the teachings would be shining in the world. So that's the most ideal time to attain enlightenment is in the human state, when there's a Buddha in existence and when the teachings are shining in the world. And he helps you see that by the rarity of this blind sea turtle coming to the surface after the entire earth has flooded and it comes to the surface of the earth once every 100 years. And there's this ring that is essentially floating around the surface of the earth. And what's the likelihood of being able to get the head of that turtle into the ring and remember this is a blind sea turtle so the entire earth is flooded there's this ring floating around the surface of the earth once every hundred years this blind turtle comes to the surface it's very 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 rare for that turtle to be able to put its head through the ring and that's what the buddha is saying here that's how rare it is to actually attain this human state questions on this particular chapter no questions for one teacher. Where to be deflected? Would name and form come to birth in this life? No, Venerable Sir. And if the consciousness of such a young being, boy or girl, were thus cut off, would name and form grow, develop, and mature? No, Venerable Sir. Therefore, Ananda, just this, namely consciousness, is a root, the cause, the origin, the condition of name and form. I have said, name and form conditions consciousness, and this is the way that should be understood, Ananda. If consciousness did not find the resting place in name and form, would there subsequently be an arising and coming to be of birth, aging, death, and discontentedness? No, Venerable Sir. Therefore, Ananda, just this, namely name and form, is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition of consciousness. Thus far then, Ananda, we can trace birth and decay, death and filling into other states and being reborn. Thus, thus far extends the way of designation. Thus far extends the way of concepts. Thus far is a sphere of understanding. Thus far the realm goes as far as can be discerned in this life, namely to name and form together with consciousness. Okay, thank you, Bossum. So this is kind of an expansion on the teaching of dependent origination, which we're going to study in, in volume five, chapter 14. If you guys would like to look at that, you can go ahead and do that. Because in volume five, chapter 14, I explain dependent origination there. That's where the Buddha has his words on dependent origination, but also I explain it as well. Because dependent origination kind of shows up at a couple of these earlier books 
But here the Buddha is kind of expanding on dependent origination a bit and connecting it even more so to the cycle of rebirth. Dependent origination is 12 individual conditions that exist that start with ignorance and end up with discontentedness. And it's what arises birth. He shows how this ignorance or unknowing of true reality step by step leads to rebirth and continuous discontentedness. So here he's kind of pulling out consciousness and name and form from dependent origination. Name and form are essentially the physical body. That's what form is, the physical body. The Buddha describes it as four great elements. He describes it as earth, wind, fire, and water. And during his lifetime, and even now in traditional medicine, they will categorize the different body parts into these four elements. So that's what form is, this physical form. What name is, is it's the other four aggregates plus contact. So if you remember the five aggregates are form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, which are choices and decisions, and then consciousness. This is what makes a being a being. They have physical form, they have feelings, they have perceptions. This is our opinions or beliefs about certain things. Then we have volitional formations or choices and decisions, and we have consciousness or the mind. And these are the things that determine that there's a living being. So what name and form is, is name is feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness along with contact. What contact is, is contact through the six sense bases of the eyes, nose, ears, tongue, body, and mind. And then the form is that physical form, that same form from the five aggregates. So essentially, whenever you see name and form, you can just think of a human being. You know, this is kind of like a way to label a human being. And, and the Buddha is describing it in much more detail, but it also relates to animals too, because animals have name and form. But afflicted spirits, beings in hell, and beings in the heavenly realm, they don't have form. So you can think of name and form as being a living being. That's just an easy way. If you aren't interested at this point in remembering the five aggregates and contact and all the other things that I talked about, you can just think of name and form as a human being. So what the Buddha is saying here is consciousness, the mind, conditions the creation of a human being. That's what he's saying. And this is the way that should be understood, Ananda. If consciousness were not to come into the mother's womb, would a living being develop there? That's what he's saying. Okay. So it's this consciousness that once this life ends, it's the consciousness and the physical body separate. And if there's going to be rebirth, it's the consciousness that goes into the mother's womb in order to create another living being. Of course, there's an egg from the mother, there's a sperm from the father, but then there's this third thing, which is the consciousness. There's this third element. If that doesn't exist, there's not going to be a birth. Just like if there's no egg, there's not going to be a birth. If there's not a sperm, there's not going to be a birth. So it's the consciousness that carries forward from one life to the next that if it continues to exist, there's going to be another living being, is what the Buddha is saying. 
So if consciousness were not to come into the mother's womb, would a living being develop there? Would name and form develop there? No, venerable sir. Or if consciousness having entered the mother's womb would be deflected, would a living being come to birth in this life? No, venerable sir, right? Because if there's a consciousness that even comes in, maybe it comes in, but maybe the mother's body doesn't accept it and it gets rejected or deflected. So therefore, a living being is not going to come about. And if the consciousness of such a tender young being, boy or girl, were thus cut off, would name and form grow, develop, and mature? This is essentially describing a miscarriage, right? So if the egg, the sperm, and the consciousness comes in and it starts growing in the mother's womb, but yet it was cut off in the mother's womb, this is a miscarriage, right? Or even an abortion, essentially. Even though those two things happen for different reasons, it's still cutting off the consciousness. And of course, if the consciousness of a boy or girl was cut off while in the womb, then there would be no growth, develop, or maturity of that living being. Therefore, Ananda, just this, namely consciousness, is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition that creates a living being. So it's consciousness, the continuation of consciousness, that creates a living being. He doesn't say it in this teaching, but it's craving, desire, attachment that creates the fuel that continues consciousness. If at the end of this life, by the end of this life, all craving, desire, attachment has been extinguished, there's no further fuel to maintain consciousness. So consciousness is extinguished. So therefore, there won't be any more rebirth, is what the Buddha is getting to here. I have said name and form conditions consciousness, and in this way, that should be understood. So there's these condition of having name and form inside the womb that allows consciousness and name and form to come together in order to create the living being. If consciousness did not find a resting place in name and form, would there subsequently be an arising coming to be of birth, aging, death, and discontentedness? No, venerable sir. So if the consciousness doesn't come into a living being, into name and form, then there would be no birth. There would be no aging. There would be no death. There would be no discontentedness at all. Therefore, Ananda, just this, namely name and form, is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition of consciousness. Thus far then, Ananda, we can trace birth and decay, death and falling into other states and being reborn. So it's consciousness. If you go through the whole entire dependent origination, you can see how consciousness leads to creating this living being, which ultimately experiences birth, aging, death, and discontentedness. That's why we all still exist in the cycle of rebirth, because in our prior lives, we didn't extinguish craving, desire, attachment. We didn't have the wisdom of how to do that. So now we can gain that wisdom, extinguish craving, desire, attachment, experience peacefulness for the rest of this life. And then at death, there will be no longer any more births because we will have extinguished all the conditions that create rebirth. We will have also, progressing on this path 
to attain enlightenment will have extinguished all the conditions that cause discontentedness. So that's how you know that you've attained enlightenment is when the mind is no longer discontent for extended periods of time. You will know that the mind is utterly peaceful, no longer experiencing discontentedness. And you will know that you have extinguished discontentedness and therefore you've escaped the cycle of rebirth and never again will you experience birth. Therefore, you will never again experience sickness and death. Therefore, you will never again experience discontentedness in this life or any future if there is something after death for an enlightened being. So that's how this whole path leads to the elimination of birth, sickness, death, and discontentedness. I was looking at this part a bit closely yesterday, I think it was, and I'm not exactly seeing how 100% how this connects to this teaching. A little bit more challenging to kind of connect all of that, but everything that I just shared really can help you to understand what the Buddhist teaching here. I think this is just kind of a way to kind of wrap up this teaching, but what I've shared so far is what he's essentially teaching regarding consciousness leads to rebirth, and if there's no name and form, and there's no consciousness, then the living being doesn't come to be, therefore there's no birth, sickness, death, or discontentedness. Questions on this chapter, chapter three? Yes, teacher. And Randall, I have the same question, which is, are there any teachings that tell us when the consciousness enters a being? There is a teaching about that. The Buddha says in order for there to be what we would call an embryo, there has to be a consciousness at that time. So where most people in society kind of think that a being exists in the mother's womb at maybe six weeks or later, when there's a fetal heartbeat, the Buddha teaches that in order for the embryo to even take hold, there has to be an egg, a sperm, and a consciousness. And you're going to see that, I think it's in volume 11, that he shares that, that all three of these conditions. He talks about the mother being in season, which I think is very cute. He talks about the father joining the mother, and he talks about the consciousness that all three of these things have to come together to create a embryo, essentially. Well, Holly has the hand raised. That's over there. Hi, I thought it would be faster to just ask than try to type it. Um, so with that answer, my question is based on what was said previously about miscarriage. Does that mean if the consciousness is entered a being at the point of embryo, if the mother has a miscarriage, that means that that consciousness is going to be reborn? Yes, absolutely. In fact, one of the ways that we think about it is that this being was trying to be reborn too quickly, and that's why there was a miscarriage. And this can actually really help. My wife and I experienced a miscarriage prior to Bailan, and she was, I would like to say, maybe about six weeks pregnant at that time. And, you know, at that time, her and I weren't practicing very closely. So for about two weeks, we were, you know, a bit sad during this experience because there's attachment that forms even when there's just an embryo in the womb of a, of a mother. So as I looked at this and I started to understand it, the way that 
Buddhism looks at this and Buddhist teachings look at it is that, okay, there was a being that came to be that created the embryo, but that being was trying to be reborn too quickly and therefore it didn't hold. And if you think of it that way, it actually helps to release any guilt or any shame or any fear that uh, parents might be experiencing that they did something wrong. Because oftentimes when there's a miscarriage, we think that maybe we did something wrong. Maybe the mom feels guilty that she didn't eat right or she was too stressed or maybe she was working too hard. Or maybe the husband feels like his sperm wasn't strong enough or he didn't care for the woman enough. And there can be some guilt that comes in because of the attachment that forms. So we can get rid of that guilt and shame and fear if there's a miscarriage and just understand that, okay, this being was attempting to be reborn. It wasn't the right conditions to create the rebirth. Maybe the name and form that egg and sperm coming together wasn't in the best condition for this consciousness to reside in that. So therefore, the mother's body did what it needed to do, which essentially the body maybe rejected the egg and the sperm and the consciousness, or maybe it just got cut off and it just wasn't meant to be. And this can really help to, like I said, relieve any kind of guilt, shame, or fear that might be associated with a miscarriage. But yeah, at that time, as soon as the egg and sperm come together, the Buddha says there needs to be a consciousness at the same time. And this is why people who are practicing these teachings very closely wouldn't have an abortion necessarily. Now, whether it's legal or illegal, that's a whole nother question for people who make laws. But in terms of practicing that first precept, if you are going to practice that first precept very closely about living compassionately for all living beings, at the time that the egg sperm come together in the womb of the mother, it's already a living being. It doesn't matter how many weeks and it doesn't matter about the fetal heartbeat either. It's already considered a living being because at that point, it already has the five aggregates a being that is has the egg, sperm, and consciousness, there's already form, physical form, there's already feelings, there's already perceptions, there's already volitional formations, decisions, because the egg decides to split and split and split and grow. It's already making decisions, and there's already a consciousness there to create that. There's nothing else there that could create the separation and growth of the being in the mother's womb, that consciousness needs to be there in order to create its maturity and growth in the mother's womb. So if we would like to practice these teachings very closely, we'll look at not having abortions if that's what we choose. And of course, everybody has to come to their own decision on that. The Buddha never said that what somebody should or shouldn't do, abortion didn't even exist during his lifetime. And I would never say what somebody should or shouldn't do You'll see in this book, when you get to chapter 44, I talk a bit about abortion. And as I talk about it, I make sure that people understand that it's a personal choice of the individual, of the woman, perhaps in consultation with her partner. And there should never, ever, ever be any judgment of other people towards an individual who maybe chooses to get an abortion for one reason or another. But because we oftentimes do have abortions nowadays, that's why there can oftentimes be guilt, shame, and fear that comes along after the abortion. 
because of the gamma, that when we kill a living being, there's going to be discontentedness and other things that come along with that as a result of our gamma of killing a living being. So not saying whether someone should or shouldn't get a abortion. What I'm sharing is that there's going to be results of those decisions. There's going to be effects because of those actions of killing. And that's typically where the people involved will oftentimes feel guilt, shame, or fear as a result of killing a living being. So teacher David, I just wanted to clarify, um, at the time of when an uh, egg, sperm, and consciousness meet, there need not be a fetal heartbeat for it to be a being, correct? Exactly. That's 100% correct. The fetal heartbeat, uh, while we tend to look at it from a medical standpoint, that that's when a living being exists, when you look at the Buddhist teachings, this very wise teacher who discovered the entire path to enlightenment on his own, he gives the five aggregates as how to determine if there's a living being or not. And a embryo has all five aggregates. And not only does he give that, but he also gives this discourse where he talks about these three things coming together in order to create a living being. So we've got those teachings from him, and we can see it for ourselves too, that once you understand the five aggregates closely, and you see that an embryo, even at the time of conception, has the five aggregates, then you'll understand that, yes, that's a living being at the time of conception. Okay, would someone, would a being that has any particular special need, um, even at the point where the sperm and the egg and consciousness meet, would there be any deprived, um, would the aggregates be lessened if they were to exhibit special needs at the time of birth, particularly uh, if they cannot form, um, you know, perception or they're not able to experience um, life as a a a person who doesn't have special needs does, would would the time of uh, when the egg, sperm, and consciousness meet, would the aggregates still be the five aggregates? if they had a special needs at the time of birth? Yes, there's beings that we consider to have special needs, they still have all the five aggregates and they're still experiencing form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations and consciousness. It just might not be to the same degree as somebody else. So they're still experiencing all five aggregates and they're still a living being. I just wanted to also scope back to dependent origination. Um, At what point in the path uh, towards learning uh, the teaching is it very critical uh, to fully grasp the dependent origination? I put it in volume five of this book series because I think that's about a good time to start looking at dependent origination, but you could actually look at it now if you'd like to understand it, because some of these chapters, even in volume two, point to dependent origination. So if you'd like to study that, you can even talk to me in a private session in order to gain some clarity on that, because that's another one of those teachings that it typically takes multiple times to look at it and having multiple discussions with your teacher to fully understand it. Kind of like the universal truth of non-self. It's one of those 
higher level teachings that require real deep thought, real clarity of mind, really looking at it closely. Dependent origination isn't something that I would suggest somebody look at within their first six months of learning the Buddhist teachings, maybe even within the first year. But then around that year time frame, or when they're starting to get into these books here, that's a good time to start looking at dependent origination and understand that you're not going to understand it right away. And it's going to take multiple looks, multiple reads, practicing it in life to learn it and multiple discussions with your teacher. And also the other thing that's interesting, I think about dependent origination is that I would consider dependent origination the highest, most supreme teaching of the Buddha. If you can dive into dependent origination, look at that multiple times, have multiple discussions with your teacher, and then look in the world and see the truth for yourself, that it is indeed the truth. If you can understand dependent origination over multiple visits, there are no other teachings that are more challenging to grasp and apply in practice than dependent origination. So if you can get that, sure, understanding non-self and applying that, that's challenging, but not as challenging as dependent origination. Sure, looking at the six sense bases or the five aggregates and some of these other things are a bit challenging, but not as challenging as dependent origination. So oftentimes when people start having the light bulbs go off with dependent origination, I feel like that's a really good sign because there's no other teachings that are more challenging than that one. And not that it's really that challenging. It just takes you a while to kind of wrap your mind around it. Once you wrap your mind around it and you soak it in on multiple discussions, multiple reads, you realize, oh, this is actually quite easy. This is straightforward. This truly explains everything in such a concise teaching. If you're looking for one place where the Buddha explains the path to enlightenment and kind of like uh, why we experience this cycle of rebirth and discontentedness, it's that. But then... It can be challenging when you first approach it, but then when you actually get your mind around it and fully understand it, you realize like, oh, wow, it's actually quite straightforward and very clear. It's just because if there's pollution in the mind, which there is for all unenlightened beings and not understanding dependent origination means there's still pollution in the mind. So because of the pollution in the mind, that craving anger and ignorance and knowing of true reality, that's what's making it challenging to understand dependent origination. But once you understand it, that can actually help eradicate some of that ignorance, a big portion of that ignorance in the mind about the natural laws of existence. And when you do read that, learn that, have multiple conversations, and you finally grasp it through practice and observing its truth, wow, it can really open a lot of light bulbs for you. It can really open your eyes very wide. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. So yeah, feel free to go ahead if you guys would like and go to volume five at some point in the coming weeks. Look at chapter 14. I explain it there. The Buddha explains it there. Even chapter 15 has some of the Buddha's description of it as well. And then feel free to schedule personal guidance sessions to talk about it and we can discuss it. When we get to volume five, we will discuss it, but feel free to to go ahead and because you're going to need to read that multiple times and absorb it multiple times to really grasp it. Next chapter, or do we have more questions on this chapter? We can go to next. Okay. 
Chapter four, paying homage in the six directions. I think this is me, right, Bossum? Yeah. Yeah, I think that yeah. Okay, so I picked this chapter because it's pretty long and I figured I would just kind of read it a little bit more expeditiously and then kind of teach it as we go rather than have you guys read it and try to retain all of that all the way through and then I actually teach it. So what this particular chapter is about is it's about this Hindu ritual that was being practiced during the lifetime of the Buddha. You know, the Buddha lived in a area of the world where Hinduism was being practiced and his teachings were all completely unique in some ways, some pretty significant ways to helping people understand this path to enlightenment. And one of the things that he used to do is he would kind of commandeer something or look at something that people were already familiar with. And then he would kind of cast it in a new light in order to help them learn and practice the path to enlightenment. So for example, this paying homage in the six directions, Hindus during the lifetime of the Buddha were already worshiping six directions, the four directions of the compass, north, east, south, and west, the zenith, which is above your head, and the nadar, which is below your feet, these six directions. They were worshiping in these six directions. So this particular teaching picks up where the Buddha is actually walking along the street, if I remember correctly, and there's this young boy who is actually doing these this rites and rituals, worshiping in the six directions, and ultimately ends up asking the Buddha, you know, can you teach me the proper way to do this? So the Buddha kind of commandeers this ritual and kind of strips away all the ritualistic aspects of it and then cast it in a new light based on the path to enlightenment, helping the young student see how to actually practice the teachings that lead to enlightenment. And he uses the six directions to represent different groups of people that you should practice the teachings with and how you should practice the teachings and based on how you're practicing what you will experience as a result. So let's go through this and I'll read it and help you guys see a little bit more of what I'm talking about. Well, venerable sir, how should one pay homage, respect, to the six directions according to the noble discipline? The noble discipline is the Buddhist teachings. It would be good if the perfectly enlightened one were to teach me the proper way to pay homage, respect, to the six directions according to the noble discipline. Young householder, this is the Buddha talking, young householder, it is by abandoning the four defilements of action, by not doing evil from the four causes, by not following the six ways of wasting one's substance through avoiding these 14 evil ways that the noble discipline covers the six directions, and by such practice becomes a conqueror of both worlds so that all will go well with him in this world and the next and at the breakup of the body after death he will go to a good destination a heavenly world so remember hindus are practicing certain rites rituals ceremonies and worship in order to get to heaven i think is what they teach so the buddha is saying you know the way that you can kind of conquer and gain peace in this world and if you're reborn in the heavenly world, it's through practicing what the Buddha is about to teach him. 
not practicing these rites, ritual, ceremonies, and worship. So then the Buddha goes on. What are the four defilements of action that are abandoned? Taking life is one. Taking what is not given is one. Sexual misconduct is one. False speech is one. So these are four out of the five precepts. He's saying to abandon these four defilements. These are the four defilements of action that he abandons. What are the four causes of evil from which refrain? Evil action springs from craving. It springs from anger or ill will. It springs from ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. It springs from fear. So any kind of evil actions, any bodily actions, the Buddha is saying that this is all caused by craving, anger, and ignorance, as well as fear. He also talks about this as the natural law of gamma. He talks about all evil, unwholesome gamma arises from craving, anger, and ignorance. So we produce all unwholesome, all unskillful actions through craving, anger, and ignorance when the mind is polluted. And then he adds the fear in here. If the noble disciple, the noble disciple is one who's practicing very close, a student who's practicing very closely. If the noble disciple does not act out of craving, anger, ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, or fear, he will not do evil from any one of the four causes. So when you eliminate craving, anger, ignorance, and fear, then your bodily actions and all your decisions will be purified, that you'll make wholesome decisions. And which are the six ways of wasting one's substance that he does not follow? Addiction to strong drink and sloth-producing drugs, substances that cause heedlessness, is one way of wasting one's substance. Haunting the streets at unfitting times is one. Attending fairs is one. Being addicted to gambling is one. Keeping unwholesome company is one. Habitual idleness is one. So let's look at these closely. So if you've had experience with any of these things, you can reflect on this and see the truth for yourself. If you've ever indulged in your certain times of your life in strong drink or sloth producing drugs, substances that cause heedlessness, you know during that time it wasn't a very productive time in your life and you were wasting your substance. You were wasting your ability to have beneficial outcomes for your life. That's essentially what the Buddha is saying here. So you've already got that background and that experience. Haunting the streets at unfitting times is one. I really like this. I certainly used to haunt the streets at unfitting times, going out late at night. There's really not much wholesome that's going on at those times, if you go out at midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., if you're walking towards the light and you would like to get out of the darkness, which we talk about the unenlightened mind as being the darkness, walking to the light is enlightenment, well, you would go out during the light. You know, there's not a whole lot of wholesome things that are happening in the dark. Oftentimes, various cities become a completely different place from daytime until nighttime. So, to maintain your viability, to ensure you're not wasting your substance. The Buddha is suggesting that you don't go out late at night at unfitting times, that instead you go out in the daylight hours. And this would be someone who's looking to be involved in wholesome things. Attending fairs is one. 
During the lifetime of the Buddha, there wasn't a whole lot of entertainment the way that there is now. Now we have so much entertainment available to us. Fairs was pretty much how they were able to entertain themselves, you know, roaming fairs or festivals. So a person who's practicing very closely and looking to eliminate central desire, which is one of those fetters, isn't going to indulge in attending fairs and festivals. That doesn't mean you can't do those things and still not have central desire. But if you're in the process of stripping your attachments away, eliminating craving, desire, attachment, eliminating anger, hatred, or will, eliminating ignorance, unknowing of true reality, then you might kind of reduce and significantly shrink the amount of entertainment that you're being involved in. That might include movies, going shopping, you know, just for erroneous things. It might include, you know, things like television and other kind of content that we take in. You might decide to kind of strip your life down for three months, six months or a year and train the mind not to be attached to those things and find peacefulness without these things. Because oftentimes we use entertainment in order to cover up boredom or loneliness. So if you can strip your practice down, eliminating that entertainment, training the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, and you know you're not covering up any boredom or loneliness, then once you get to the other side of that, then perhaps you start using those things again, but you're not doing it out of a need to cover up boredom or loneliness. You're not doing it out of a desire for pleasant feelings. You're just maybe going to take in a movie and kind of enjoy the experience of spending time with your family or friends and enjoying entertainment. So while an ordained practitioners probably would have avoided fairs altogether, and nowadays ordained practitioners will essentially avoid all entertainment, household practitioners will need to have self-discipline and inner discipline to strip these things out of your life, go for an extended period of time observing that the mind is still peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy without boredom and loneliness. And then once you've realized that you've eliminated any attachment to entertainment, then if you bring those things back in, you can do that and maintain your contentedness. That can be just fine for a household practitioner. Being addicted to gambling is one. This would waste one substance. If you're acquiring wealth and you're gambling, you're wasting your substance. You're wasting your productivity when you acquire wealth if you go out and gamble. You won't have the ability to provide life-sustaining resources for yourself and your family if this money that you've acquired gets wasted on gambling. So that's wasting one substance. Keeping unwholesome company is one. So keeping unwholesome company is like having unwholesome friends or associates. Because if you have people like that around you and you choose to be around that, that can affect your life as well. Your choice to be associated with people who are involved in unwholesome things is going to affect you. And I don't think we've studied it yet in this class, but you'll see one of the famous teachings that the Buddha taught about the snake who goes through feces. While it won't bite you, it will smear you with the feces. And this is kind of like a unwholesome friend. While they might not bite you, you'll get smeared. Your reputation will get smeared. Your ability to interact in the world in a wholesome way will get smeared. 
And then the last one here is habitual idleness. So if you're just habitually complacent and lying around and doing nothing, this is wasting one substance. You're not actually producing wholesome results. The antidote to that would be practicing the enlightenment factor of energy, where there's motivation, there's encouragement, there's enthusiasm to interact in the world and accomplish things. So eliminating that habitual idleness is one way of wasting one substance. Now I saw a hand go up right there. Since this is so long of a teaching, I thought I would just pause and see if there's any questions there. And if that was a mistake, we can just move on. Yes, teacher. A question from Holly. She asks us, do you have any advice on what actions one can take to stop indulging in entertainment, like movies or scrolling Facebook? I have good intentions, but usually fall into spending too much time on these activities. Yeah, you have to have inner discipline. You know, if you give your phone to somebody and say, don't give this back to me for three days, or the next five hours or something like that. If you need somebody's help to do that, then do it. Or if, you know, putting your mobile device in a situation where it's harder for you to get at it. So if you take a box and you put your mobile phone in the box and then you put that box into another box and then you put your that box into a drawer, that way when you're going about the house and you have that craving that comes up to surf Facebook and look at posts, you can't just grab your phone and open it back up. It kind of gives you more time. There's more of a delay there that you have to think, do I really want to open the drawer, open the box, open another box, open my phone, and you might actually end up stopping yourself, restraining the mind during that time if you can kind of create more obstacles for yourself to pick up your phone. Because when it's so easy and it's sitting right by your side, that makes it easier for you to pick it up. So having it in a completely different room or kind of buried somewhere or you give it to somebody else to hold on to for a while, that can be really helpful for you to eliminate picking it up and scrolling through posts. Holly? Yeah, that's a good advice. I'm gonna have to try that. Um, usually when I find myself, it's very intentional, even though I get up in the morning and I say, I'm gonna not watch any movies today or I'm not gonna scroll Facebook for hours or whatever it is that I'm working to eliminate or pare down. Um, typically it's when I've done a lot of things and I felt productive in my day and I'm like kind of justify taking time to myself to like almost like rewarding myself for doing cleaning the house or whatever I did that day and say I'm gonna take a break and while I'm taking that break I will watch part of this movie or I'll scroll Facebook. And then usually I realize later that I could have been more productive doing something else, but then I question whether or not productivity is that important and maybe I should be taking more downtime because I do work a lot. And so I'm trying to find that balance. Yeah, what you're talking about there is finding the middle because mm -hmm. yeah, if you've been working throughout your day and you sit down and you look at some social media or you do some communication, there's no issues with that. But if it leads to this habitual idleness, that's where you're wasting your substance. So you have to observe, you know, if you're on Facebook for some amount of time, okay, you know, that's actually good to interact in the world. But if it becomes like three hours a day, 10 hours a day, and you're not actually using it to be productive, it's just kind of like almost idleness, just kind of occupying the mind, then that 
you know, can be problematic. So it's not necessarily about the amount of time that we spend because you guys probably know I spend a lot of time on Facebook and Facebook is a tool for me to be able to share these teachings. So it's not necessarily just about the amount of time we spend on Facebook. It's about what we're doing to produce beneficial results in the world. So Facebook can actually be quite beneficial for certain people. So you have to look at, you know, are you living a balanced life? Do you have, you know, trash piling up around you while you're on Facebook? Or are you genuinely taking care of the things that you have to take care of? And you're just using this as a way of kind of relaxing, as you say. One of the things to observe is, you know, try to go without Facebook for three days or five days or a week and see how the mind feels during that time. And if you observe this craving that you wanted and you want it and you want it, then there's a craving there. And what you should do is you should just not use Facebook for an extended period of time. And it, it can sometimes be a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month. And then once you observe that the craving's not there anymore, then you can pick up and start using Facebook again because you've extinguished the craving. But if the mind is obsessing about it and constantly thinking about, I wonder what's going on, you know, oh, I should post that, or I wonder what my friends are up to, I should check, has anyone liked my post or not? These kind of obsessive thoughts indicates that there's craving there, and you know, you need to extinguish that in order to get to enlightenment. And the way that you would do that is distance yourself from the Facebook for a period of time to allow the craving to be eliminated. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. So the next part here is, Ian Howe, Householder's Son, does the Noble Disciple protect the six directions? So this is where the Buddha now introduces the six directions, these six groups of people, of things that we can practice in order to honor and respect the six directions or these six groups of people. So these six things are to be regarded as the six directions. The East denotes mother and father. The South denotes teachers. The West denotes wife and children. And of course, you can substitute life partner there. He was talking to a young boy, so he used wife, but you can substitute life partner in there as well. So the West denotes life partner and children. The north denotes friends and companions. The nadar, which is down, denotes servants, workers, and helpers. So you can think of this as your employees or your, your co-workers, right? Or if you have household help or something like that. The zenith, which is up, denotes aesthetics in Brahmin or you know people who are sharing the teachings into the world. So now the Buddha says duties to minister to the eastern direction. What he's talking about here is like, what should we be practicing towards the easterly direction? And that easterly direction is our mother and father. So there are five ways in which a son, and you can also say daughter or non-binary being, depending on how you consider yourself, should minister to his mother and father as the easterly direction. So these are the things that the Buddha is saying that we should consider in terms of practicing with our mother and father. And you can also think of this as caregivers, adopted parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, things like this. But particularly, he's talking about mother and father here. He should think, having been supported by them, 
I will support them. So here, if your parents have been helping you to become an adult, supporting you in your life, providing you food, water, shelter, clothing, and medical care, then you know it's up to us to also support our parents as they age and ensure that they're well taken care of because they helped us with this start in our life to get this ideal human birth to attain enlightenment that we should also help them as well and support them. I will perform their duties for them. This is like helping them with chores around the house. I will keep up the family tradition. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, it was really important that if your family was in a particular trade or craft or had a certain livelihood, that you would keep that up because that's the way to build up gamma. So if your family were blacksmiths, for example, everybody in that family would just continue to be blacksmiths because it really builds up your gamma that you have these multiple generations of blacksmithing in your family and more and more people know to come to your family for this service or any other service that you can think of. So that's what he's talking about, family tradition. That's not necessarily something that we do nowadays in most cultures, but it's something that the Buddha talked about during his lifetime. I will be worthy of my heritage. So this is, you know, the family that you're born into. The Buddha was born as a royal family, so he would be practicing good, wholesome behavior and conduct to show that he's worthy of this heritage of being born into a good family. Right? Just an example. He was roaming homeless aesthetic by the time he was sharing this. After my parents' deaths, I will distribute gifts on their behalf. So once a person dies, there's oftentimes a lot of people who have craving, desire, attachment, and you yourself might have craving, desire, attachment as a result of living and growing up with your parents. One of the ways to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, in addition to breathing mindfulness meditation, is to practice generosity. So one of the ways for you to let go of any craving, desire, attachment at the time of death from your parents and to also honor your parents is distribute gifts on their behalf at their death. So if you find yourself even now, five, ten years after your parents' death, if you're still sad, if you're still feeling discontent because of the loss that you experienced, you can actually practice this where you hand out gifts on behalf of your parents. This generosity will help you let go of your parents because you're sustaining their memory by giving gifts to other people and you're practicing generosity of letting go of holding on to your parents so tightly. So once you practice these five, the Buddha is saying these are the five things that will essentially be reciprocated as a result of you practicing those five. So here he says, and there are five ways in which parents so ministered to by their son as the easterly direction will reciprocate. So if you're a parent, this is what the Buddha is saying that we should do for our children. They will restrain him from evil. So our objective as parents is to restrain our children from evil, particularly in those early ages where they lack wisdom, right? Even though the Buddha talked about not restraining his students, his students are pretty much, you know, adults, right? But here, what a parent's doing, particularly in those early years when a child's mind doesn't have 
much wisdom at all. You're working to restrain them from evil because if they go out and steal cars or lie or kill or have sexual misconduct, substances that cause heedlessness, all these different things, then they're going to produce a whole lot of unwholesome gamma for themselves without them even realizing it because their ignorance is so significant early in life. So it is our role as parents to restrain our children from evil. The second thing is support him in doing good. So this is sharing wisdom with our children in order to help them and encourage them in doing good. That's one of our roles as a parent is to restrain them from evil and give them this wisdom to help them make good, wholesome decisions. We can't control our children, but we can share wisdom with them to help them make better and better decisions in life. Teach him some skill. So this is going along with the family tradition that if you're a family of blacksmiths, for example, then you will teach your children that same skill or some other skills. But nowadays, you know, we might teach our children how to iron clothes, how to cook food, how to bake certain baked goods, how to maintain their house, how to maintain their car, having some skills to be able to function in the world and they're not so dependent on everyone else in the world. So that's what our role is as a parent is teach our children skills to help them become more self-sufficient in life. Find him a suitable wife or life partner. So this is kind of interesting because during the lifetime of the Buddha, of course, parents were much more involved in selecting a life partner for their children than nowadays. But nowadays, we still kind of help our children to a certain extent to understand wholesome qualities and things to look for in a life partner. Again, we can't control and we shouldn't even attempt to control our child's choices of a life partner. But when asked and where appropriate, we can provide our thoughts to our children about people that they're potentially considering to be a life partner, because that's a major decision in someone's life. And choosing a certain life partner is going to have long lasting effects in their life. So a individual who's choosing a life partner, if there's craving, anger and ignorance in the mind, which there probably is, then they might not be seeing true reality very clearly. So it's our role and responsibility as a parent to kind of provide advice as appropriate to help our children make very suitable choices as it relates to life partner. But then once we give that advice, we need to be unattached to it and accepting whatever decisions our children make. In due time, hand over his inheritance to him. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, inheritance was handed over to children prior to the parent's death. So that inheritance was given to your children, but then your children took care of you throughout the rest of your life. Because as people aged, if they weren't enlightened, their mind would deteriorate and they wouldn't be able to make as good of decisions anymore. So the inheritance was given to your children prior to you reaching that point, And then your children just always took care of you. In this way, the easterly direction is covered, making it at peace and free from fear. There's a bunch of different teachings here, and I'm just looking at the time and noticing the time. I could actually go through and teach every last one of these, 
but I feel like I've already done that in the explanations. And what I think I'll do is just kind of see what questions you guys have, if any, about any of these different directions. Yes, teacher. I mean, as a question, she says, how can we tell if we are watching movies or programs for entertainment versus as an attachment? We cancel Netflix and don't miss it as much as we thought we would. How long to wait before getting it again? Or should we? Right. So one of the things you can do is say the mind arises the thought of I would like to watch a movie on Netflix and you're not sure if it's a craving or not. Well, what you should do in that situation is even though the mind has this thought of you'd like to watch Netflix, just choose not to do it and postpone your decision to watch that movie for like a week or two and watch it a week or two from now and see if the mind is like craving it for that week or two. Is it constantly thinking about it? If it is, then there's a craving desire attachment there. But if you can easily delay it and you can watch it today or you can watch it two weeks from now, then in the mind's perfectly content, then the mind doesn't have craving. Or if while you're watching the movie, if there's all these pleasant feelings that arise in the mind as a result of being interested to watch the movie, watching the movie or after the movie if there's all these pleasant feelings that arise excitement thrill euphoria then you know that there's a craving desire attachment there so these are two ways that you can look at another thing is is if you're watching the movie and your internet goes out or the electric goes out and it cuts it off are you like oh like if you have that strong reaction when the impermanence happens when the movie gets cut off for any reason, then there's a craving desire attachment there. Because if there wasn't craving desire attachment and the movie just got cut off because of Wi-Fi or electric, you'd just be like, hmm, okay, movie's off. Hmm, wonder what happened. And you'll just try to fix it. But if you feel that strong feeling, like, oh, what happened? Oh my goodness. Then there's craving desire attachment there. The mind's not comfortable with the impermanence and it's longing and yearning for the movie. So these are a few that you can look at. Thanks, teacher. No more questions for this time. Okay, so we're just going to go through to the next one then because I described each of those in a lot of detail, and I think the Buddhist teachings are fairly clear too. But if you have any questions on any of the individual aspects of the six directions, just let me know. You can post a question in Facebook. You can reach out to me in all the other ways that I offer help. So let's go on to Chapter 5. Yes, uh, this one belongs to Emmanuel. Four worthy deeds to be undertaken with wealth. Householder with wealth acquired by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth righteously gained, the noble disciple undertakes four worthy deeds. What for? One, here householder with wealth acquired by energetic striving, Amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth righteously gained. The noble disciple makes himself content and pleased and properly maintains himself in contentedness. He makes his parents content and pleased and properly maintains them in contentedness. He makes his wife and children, his slaves, workers, and servants content and pleased and properly maintains them in contentedness. He makes his friends and companions content and pleased and properly maintains them in contentedness. 
This is the first case of wealth that has gone to good use that has been properly utilized and used for a worthy cause. Two, again, this wealth acquired by energetic striving amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth righteously gained, and the whole disciple makes provisions against the losses that might arise from fire, floods, kings, thieves, or displease, displeasing heirs. He makes himself secure against them. This is the second case of wealth that has gone to good use, that has been properly employed and used for a worthy cause. Three, again, this wealth acquired by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained. The noble disciple makes the five offerings to relatives, guests, ancestors, the king, and the deities. This is the third case of wealth that has gone to good use, that has been properly employed and used for a worthy cause. Again, with wealth acquired by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained, the noble disciple establishes an uplifting offering of alms, a donation, an offering that is heavenly, resulting in contentedness, conducive to heaven. To those ascetics and Brahmins who refrain from intoxication and heedlessness, who are settled in patience and mildness, who tame the mind, calm the mind, and train the mind for nirvana, enlightenment. This is the fourth case of wealth that has gone to good use, that has been properly employed and used for a worthy cause. These householder are the four worthy deeds that the noble disciple undertakes with wealth acquired by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained. When anyone exhausts wealth on these four worthy deeds, that wealth is said to have gone to good use, to have been properly used, to have been utilized for a worthy cause. Okay, thank you, Manol. So the previous chapter that we didn't discuss all the way, it ends with the Buddha describing that we should make offerings to people who are sharing these teachings as a way to continue them in the world and support the teachers who are sharing these teachings. So here, now he says, okay, well, how should a householder use their wealth? Because one of the things that you might think about is, you know, where's the middle in terms of being able to provide donations and helping people who are sharing these teachings, but also attending to your particular needs. So the Buddha essentially gives you that middle for practicing generosity. He gives these four different classifications of how wealth should be used. And first, he essentially talks about maintaining your own contentedness, ensuring that you have what you need to sustain your life, food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical supplies, essentially. And then he talks about your life partner, your children, and, and your workers, the people around you, because these are the people who are supporting you and encouraging you and helping you in life without your life partner, your children, your employees, for example, and people who are supporting your work, then you wouldn't be able to continue to make an income. So he says, make sure all those people are taken care of first. Then he says, the second group of people are essentially making sure that your wealth is protected from fire, floods, kings, thieves, displeasing heirs, right? Ensure that you're protecting your wealth. And then the third one, he talks about ensuring that our relatives, our guests, our ancestors, the king, which you can think of as like the government, you know, taxes and stuff. Uh, and he also talks about deities here. He mentions it. It's the one place that I've seen him mention that. So he talks about that there. And then the fourth one, which I think is really telling of Gautama Buddha, 
he says, okay, this is where, once all those other things are satisfied, this is where you can practice generosity towards the teachers who are sharing these teachings. And I think this is really important for anybody who practices generosity towards supporting these teachings that yes, we need to support these teachings in the world, but you can't continue to support these teachings with extensive amounts of wealth if you yourself don't even have food to eat, for example. So you have to be sure that you work on satisfying your own needs and the needs of those people around you before you can actually start making offerings. Or maybe you make very small offerings, maybe like a dollar or five dollars. And then as you learn these teachings more, you improve your life, your income expands, then maybe you increase if you would like to. But that's a totally a personal choice. But I think this is really telling of the Buddha because as I mentioned at the beginning of class, a teacher who's sharing these teachings they're not doing it for their own benefit. They're not doing it to line their pockets or become a millionaire. The Buddha was already super rich as the next king in his kingdom, that he wasn't interested in money. Uh, He was just interested in sustaining his life and sharing these teachings in the world. And you should see that as part of anybody's practice who's sharing these teachings. If you're seeing a religious leader with Rolls Royces and private jets and Rolex watches and mansions and multiple mansions. That's all wealth that's being absorbed for their own central desires. It's not being put to good use to actually support and use the teachings in the world and continue the teachings in the world. So anybody who's really practicing these teachings closely and those people that we would like to support are the ones that the Buddha is talking about here, where he says those who are settled in patience, in mildness, who tame the mind, calm the mind, and train the mind for Nibbana. So if somebody's unrestrained and indulging in all of these worldly possessions, then they're not restraining the mind and practicing for Nibbana. So anybody who you support, you should look at their practice and see how they're practicing, you know, are they really using the funds for wholesome things to continue to share the teachings in the world or are they using those funds for absorbing in material possessions? So that's really important and ensure that you take care of yourself and other people around you as you look to also practice generosity to continue these teachings in the world. Any questions on this one? All right, so let's go to number six, repaying one's mother and father. This one we actually might be able to skip because it was taught in volume one in the group learning program. Okay, this one essentially boils down to practicing true love is, you know, really honoring and respecting your parents for the birth that they've given you and ensuring that if they are unwise if they are not practicing the good wholesome teachings that would lead them to an improved life that we find humble ways in order to help and settle them in the teachings and that can be more challenging in some situations and less challenging in other situations the more enlightened that you are the easier it will be to share these teachings with others along the path And if you have craving, desire, attachment towards your parents, then it will be very difficult for you to share these teachings with them. 
And if they're not open to learning, you know, it would be very challenging too. So the Buddha essentially says, if you've tried to offer these teachings and they're just not practicing essentially, then you've done enough to repay them for this debt of gratitude for giving you this human birth. So if you have craving, desire, attachment towards sharing these teachings with your parents, you're going to need to extinguish that in order to attain enlightenment. But the Buddha always teaches to be respectful and polite towards our parents. And that's essentially what he's teaching here. All right, so let's go to number seven. I think this one's an interesting one. If someone would like to read it. They're all interesting, but this is one we haven't seen yet. Affection and hatred are born. One, affection born from affection. Here, monks, one person is desirable, lovable, and agreeable to another. Others treat that person in a way that is desirable, lovable, and agreeable. It occurs to the latter. Others treat that person who is desirable, lovable, and agreeable to me in a way that is desirable, lovable, and agreeable. He thus feels affection for them. It is in this way that affection is born from affection. Two, hatred born from affection. Here, monks, one person is desirable, lovable, and agreeable to another. Others treat that person in a way that is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable. It occurs to the latter. Others treat that person who is desirable, lovable, and agreeable to me in a way that is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable. He thus feels hatred for them. And it is in this way that hatred is born from affection. Three, affection born from hatred. Here, monks, one person is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable to another. Others treat that person in a way that is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable. It occurs to the latter. Others treat that person who is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable to me in a way that is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable. He thus feels affection for them. It is in this way that affection is born from hatred. Four, hatred born from hatred. Here, monks, one person is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable to another. Others treat that person in a way that is desirable, lovable, and agreeable. It occurs to the latter. Others treat that person who is undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable to me in a way that is desirable, lovable, and agreeable. He thus feels hatred for them. It is in this way that hatred is born from hatred. Okay, thank you, Holly. I explain this here in the explanation using you know, person A and other people. And I think that this really helps to explain what the Buddha is talking about here, which is essentially how your mind can be influenced towards affection or hatred based on how other people feel. So if there's a person A and you feel affection towards that person and other people feel affection towards person A, you might have affection towards these other people because they have affection towards person A. And that's affection born out of affection. But there can be this hatred born out of affection too. Whereas if you consider person A to be desirable, lovely, and agreeable, but other people consider that person to be undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable, because of your affection for person A, you might actually start hating these other people over here. And we shouldn't do that. We should have loving kindness and compassion for all beings. That's actually going to hinder your progress. If you allow another person's hatred 
for someone who you have loving kindness for to then develop hatred towards those people. So you've got to be on the lookout for that because particularly if you have craving, desire, attachment, then this can create this situation. So let's say, for example, you have a son or a daughter and their boyfriend or girlfriend likes them and sees them as being a good person. And now you like their boyfriend or girlfriend because they like your son or daughter. But now say their boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with them and they no longer like your son and daughter. You might start hating their boyfriend or girlfriend because they now broke up with your son or daughter. And you see your son or daughter that is sad and lonely and bored. And now because of your affection for your son or daughter, you start hating their girlfriend or their boyfriend. And what the Buddha is teaching is that we should have loving kindness and compassion for all beings, not allow our inner feelings to be based on other people. And he goes through these scenarios where affection born from hatred, whereas if person A is undesirable, you consider them to be undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable. And other people also consider them to be undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable. Now you have affection for these other people because both of you hate the same individual. But now you have affection for these other people because of their hatred matches your hatred, right? This isn't a wise way to practice these teachings that wouldn't lead to enlightenment. And then lastly, he talks about hatred born from hatred is when person A, you consider them to be undesirable, unlovable, and disagreeable. And then other people consider person A to be desirable, lovable, and agreeable. They like person A, but you hate person A. And now because you hate person A and these other people like person A, you start hating these other people because they like somebody that you hate. This is hatred born out of hatred. So we need to practice in a way that we don't allow hatred to arise in the mind based on how other people feel. And we also don't allow affection to arise in the mind based on how other people feel. But instead, we're neutral. We practice loving kindness and compassion for all beings, regardless of how their mind may or may not have hatred towards other people. Looks like we have a question on this one. Yes, uh, all he has for Hey, I just wanted to clarify. I think the first time I read this, I was a little bit confused and thinking that it was the affection or the hatred born out of the situation was for the original person. But now hearing you explain it, it it's more clear. It's the other people that we're talking about. Right. It doesn't have anything to do with the person, the original person A. It, so. it doesn't have anything to do with that person, but yet it does because of the person's craving, desire, attachment towards person A. If somebody else feels affection for person A, then we feel affection for these other people. But if we have affection for person A and these other people hate person A, then we start hating that person. So it doesn't have anything to do with that person. It really has to do with your craving, desire, attachment in your own mind that you're forming feelings towards these other people based on your craving, desire, attachment towards person A. Thank you, teacher. Yeah, it's really deep, right? You have to wrap your mind around it. And it's like, whoa, this Buddha was quite, quite intelligent. He was pretty wise in the way he explains things. I think when I 
when I think about this, I, I, in my mind as you're describing it, I'm thinking about sports teams and politics mm. more than anything else. Because when people don't like a certain political party, you gang up on them. And also in, in Facebook too, a lot of vegans are a little bit hostile too about their beliefs on veganism and non-vegans. It seems that they just kind of gang up on each other with this hatred or affection. We love the vegans because they're on our side and we don't like the non-vegans because they eat animals. And the same thing with politics and sports. I know growing up in a football arena type situation, if you had friends that were a sports fan, you just didn't hang out with those people because they like the wrong team. And it's even as little kids were taught that. So very good point, Holly. That's 100 percent true. And, and taking that even additionally from there is like, say you're reading a certain post and somebody comments in a lovely way, but then somebody becomes hateful towards that person then you sometimes see somebody else attack that third person because they attack the first person, right? And this just keeps the hatred just continuing flying in the world. And it's just more and more and more and more hatred. So the Buddha is kind of bringing this to your attention of what the mind can do. He doesn't actually teach, if I remember correctly down here, it might be beyond this or it might be above this. I didn't go back and look at this. But what I'm sharing with you is by you knowing this of how the mind functions now when you observe that happening you can cut it off and let it go so if you notice that you have affection for somebody because they have affection for someone that you're affectionate towards you should cut that off and just be like no i should just have loving kindness and compassion for this person just because they're a human being or if you see that somebody is hating on somebody that you have strong feelings towards don't hate them back still have loving kindness and compassion for them so this will really help you in your practice if you observe your mind starting to form opinions and feelings towards other people based on people that you have mutually involved in your life so yeah this can be really helpful for you just love kindness compassion for everybody all right chapter eight Yes, uh, the next volunteer is Mercia. All right, Mercia. The foremost, the best, the distinguished, the supreme, and the finest householder. Householder, the one enjoying sensual pleasures, who seeks wealth righteously without violence and makes himself joyful and pleased and shares it and does meritorious deeds and uses that wealth without being tied to it, obsessed with it, and blindly absorbed in it. Seeing the danger in it and understanding the escape, he may be praised on four grounds. The first ground on which he may be praised is that he seeks wealth righteously without violence. The second ground on which he may be praised is that he makes himself joyful and pleased. The second ground on which he may be praised is that he shares the wealth and does meritorious deeds. The fourth ground on which he may be praised is that he uses that wealth without being tied to it, obsessed with it, and blindly absorbed in it, seeing the danger in it and understanding the escape. This person who enjoys sensual pleasures may be praised on these four grounds. This householder is the foremost, the best, the distinguished, the supreme, and the finest kind of person who enjoys sensual pleasures. 
Just as from a cow comes milk, from milk curd, from curd butter, from butter ghee, and from ghee comes cream of ghee, which is reckoned the foremost of all these. So too, this kind of person who enjoys sensual pleasures is the foremost, the best, the distinguished, the supreme, and the finest of all those who seek wealth righteously, without violence and having, a, having obtained it, makes himself joyful and pleased and shares the wealth and does meritorious deeds and uses that wealth without being tied to it, obsessed with it, and blindly absorbed in it, seeing the danger in it and understanding the escape. Wonderful. Thank you, Marcia. So here, the Buddha is describing household practitioners. And here, he's talking about wealth and money, because as we know, this can be an enormous craving for a lot of people. During the Buddha's lifetime, the ordained practitioners weren't allowed to have any kind of gold or silver or land or any kind of material objects that were connected to any kind of wealth. The Buddha wouldn't allow them to accept those offerings, and that's what he taught. Today, it would almost be impossible for ordained practitioners to function without some kind of currency in their pocket just to take a bus or you know, to buy a little bit of food here or there or something. So they, they do have money, but they're not supposed to have an enormous amount of money sitting somewhere. Oftentimes, ordained practitioners who are practicing closely will have another person have their bank account and any kind of monetary offerings that are made to them, it gets handed over to that person. And then they kind of regulate the money. But in the household life, we are going to need to have money. We're going to need to have a house and cars and certain material possessions. And what the Buddha is essentially saying here is that we should ensure that we're not having craving, desire, attachment, being obsessed and absorbed, this blind absorbment in this wealth and in this money. And having done so, then household practitioners should be praised in terms of what are the things that you know he looks for in terms of what makes the superb or the the supreme or the distinguished or foremost householders and he talks about these four things that first he seeks wealth righteously without violence that's essentially practicing right livelihood from the eightfold path those five wrong livelihoods would cause harm in the world so if you're not practicing those five wrong livelihoods then okay this first ground this first situation the buddha saying okay you should be praised for that in terms of you've done well that you're not causing harm in the world through your livelihood to sustain your life and to produce wealth the second ground is that we make ourselves joyful and pleased that we tend to our own needs with the wealth that we have acquired that we don't just make money and give it all away and we're barely able to eat any food and take care of ourselves but instead we take care of ourselves and ensure that we have the things that we need as well. The third thing he says is that we should share our wealth. And essentially this is practicing generosity and performing meritorious deeds. This might be that you help out an orphanage, you help out some people in your community, you help out some family members, maybe you share some offerings with people who are sharing these teachings in the world, all these different ways that we can share our wealth and not just hold on to it selfishly. So he says that's the third thing. The fourth thing, 
on which he says that we should be praised is not being tied to the wealth, not being obsessed by it, blindly absorbed in it, and see the danger that if we hold on to money too tightly, then this is going to cause danger in terms of we're going to experience discontentedness. And he says that a superb, a distinguished, the foremost supreme householder will understand the escape from this obsession, from this craving. The escape is the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the way to escape training the mind to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment. And he uses this analogy of the milk being churned and creating higher and higher qualities of products because it goes from raw milk to milk curd to curd butter to butter ghee to ghee to cream of ghee this is kind of processing the milk to make it higher and higher quality and the buddha is talking about that in relationship to household practitioners that as we get further and further away from this craving desire attachment to hold on to money and this obsession we become more and more pure. We become more and more higher quality of practitioner. And he's saying that's what we should look for and we should aspire to practice. So he used this analogy of milk because people would have understood that during that lifetime when people were using milk to produce these various products. Any questions on this one? No question, this time, Okay, so... We have number nine here. This one's pretty long. I'm not sure that we're going to be able to read all of this one. But essentially what the Buddha is talking about here is how we can experience welfare and peacefulness in this present life. And he gives us four kind of things that we should look to practice. One is accomplishment and initiative. This is ensuring that we're very skilled in our work, that whatever livelihood we select, we should apply dedication and effort to become skillful and diligent in practicing that livelihood. So that if we were a profession and we had a certain career and we were just kind of like lackadaisical and didn't really provide any real value in our career, this is going to produce problems in our life that we're not really applying our effort and energy towards developing our career and providing a good service in our profession. So he calls this accomplishment and initiative. Then he talks about accomplishment and protection, that if we have protection in terms of protecting the wealth that we've acquired, then this will kind of help the mind be at ease. So practicing our profession well will help the mind be at ease, because if you're in a certain profession and you're not really applying your best intentions to perform that profession well, your mind's going to be discontent. Likewise, if you're not protecting the wealth that you've acquired and it's being stolen from you or you know it's being diminished through these things that he talks about, fire and flood and thieves and displeasing heirs, your mind's going to not be at ease because the wealth that you're acquiring isn't really well protected. You're applying all this effort and energy in your career yet your wealth is just kind of going out of the bottom of the bucket, so to speak. Then he says another thing that can lead to our peace and welfare in this life is that we select wholesome friends, ensuring that our friends and associates are virtuous, practicing good, wholesome qualities, and that we also listen to 
our elders and learn the wisdom of our elders. This is really important. He goes into a lot of detail about that. Then he talks about a balanced living, which is really interesting because during his lifetime, you know, people had income and people had expenditures. And if you've ever been in massive amount of debt or even any kind of debt, then you know the pressure of having to perform and pay those bills every month and pay the interest and being maybe fearful that you're going to lose your house or lose your cars or lose certain things in your life that you need. So here, when the Buddha talks about balanced living, he talks about ensuring that your income is higher than your expenses, where if it's the other way around, where your expenses are higher than your income, then you're not going to experience peacefulness in a welfare in this life because your mind is essentially going to be under this pressure to constantly be paying for the debts that you're incurring. So right now, if your expenditures are above your income, you're going to need to draw down your craving, desire attachments so that you can bring your expenses down and then work on increasing your income so that you can balance this out and pay off your debts and get to the point where you're debt free and you don't owe people money. And this is liberation. Walking around with a bunch of debt strapped on your shoulders, the mind can't be liberated. You can't just be at ease and do whatever you like when you owe people money. You can't just do whatever task in your day that you would like to do. You have to generate a certain amount of money in a given month or else people are going to come and take your car or take your house or take other things in your life, or maybe you even go to jail in some situations. So in order to relieve this pressure and live at ease, the Buddha describes having your income above your expenditures, and that would be balanced living. Questions on that one? Teacher David, I was wondering if, um, I don't know if there's an answer to this question that's in the mind, but what if to a certain degree the mind just views the modern living um sort of constraints of living with money as purely transactional so right um where you know with bright effort and right energy um you acquire wealth and you acquire money and sustenance um you are apply generosity to um, make sure you give away certain amounts of money and you ensure that the welfare of um, your parents and uh, your siblings and whomever is in need for for money that you um, offer offer them um, help um, but the at the end of it at the end of the day it's just it's just a lot of money going from here to there so and certain times I feel in the mind that it's a, it's a binding way of living to be using money and constantly having the transaction. And then embedded in that transaction is, hey, I give you X amount of dollars, then this is what I get in return uh, from a merchant. Or if I earn this much amount, it's because I did X amount of action. So at the end of the, I mean, there, there may not be a, a clear answer for this, but oftentimes the mind sees um, money just going from one place to another, and it's so transactional that it seems almost pointless 
That's actually the best way to look at it, Manol, is that it is pointless, that we need to have this currency in our life. It's kind of like an accounting system that we apply this much effort and therefore we can acquire the goods that we need. But if we become to the point where we're obsessed or craving or doing kind of like what you were saying where like, okay, I'm giving this much money, so I should get this back. And that should be either equal or higher value. And oftentimes if people are giving money, they want a higher value and they want to constantly grow the money. And it keeps being this craving and obsession in the mind where sometimes what the Buddha is teaching about generosity and eliminating selfishness is that we give money just for the sake of giving money, that we don't want anything in return, but instead we just share with others. And the way that I've viewed money is I view it like oil or I view it like water, that it just flows that there are certain things that I need to do in life. I need to eat food. I need to drive from point A to point B. I need to have clothing. This money that lands in my hand, it's just the oil that I put on the situation to make this event happen for me. It's not something that I'm trying to accumulate in the bank account in order to have some kind of ego or pride or arrogance that there's a certain amount of money in the bank. But instead, it's just like water that you know it just kind of flows in order to allow me to accomplish certain things that i need to accomplish in this life the money itself isn't the problem the problem is when the mind wants it and craves it and obsesses over it and then by practicing generosity that's what helps to alleviate that and that's why it's part of the buddhist teachings is to train the mind to let it go and not hold on to it so tightly so if you just view money as water as oil or almost just like as an energy that you exert a certain amount of work, you end up acquiring a certain amount of currency, and then you apply this currency to go over here in order for you to facilitate whatever it is you would like to facilitate. And you just look at it as money flowing, water flowing, oil flowing, energy flowing from one source to the next. It just facilitates our continuation in this world rather than trying to hold on to it and acquire any particular amount in the bank, if you've got your life situated where your income exceeds your expenses, then it's just a matter of kind of flowing the money and putting it in the places where it needs to be in order to facilitate whatever kind of lifestyle or livelihood that you're living. Sure, thank you. Mm-hmm. It's like Holly's got her hand up. Just based on what you just said, how would this definition and teaching of how to handle money apply to savings like for future emergencies or things like that as far as assessing money or accumulating money in a savings account for the future is that something that someone shouldn't do or shouldn't be excessive or if you if the future is unknown is that considered fear of not having enough at some point and maybe someone should not save as much as they have or how does that work into this teaching yeah that's part of this balanced lifestyle is you know he talks first about balancing your your life but then he also talks at other parts about protecting your wealth too because it's wise to have a little bit of a nest egg in case things go wrong one of the things that i would do is i would always make sure when i was looking at these things closely is i would always make sure i had enough money in the bank. Whereas if I didn't acquire any money for two months 
or upwards of six months, if I didn't get one more dollar, one more penny, that I could still live life and be unaffected so that I felt like, okay, if I lost my job today, then I kind of have two months to find another job. And I knew when I was working in the tech field, I could usually find another job in about two or three weeks. It was no problem. But then when the economy started slowing down, my skills maybe weren't as vibrant. Then I kind of expanded the amount of savings that I had and kind of expanded that to like a four or six month cushion that if I didn't get any additional dollars, I had enough to pay rent or mortgage, car payments, food, clothing, medical for a six month period of time to kind of give me that cushion. So I always felt completely confident going into work every day where some people would be very scared, very fearful of losing their job. I would walk into work each day without any fear because I knew that if I lost my job today or if the company went out of business today, that I had money to take care of myself and I had time to find another job. So what you're talking about, Holly, is actually a way to create peacefulness and good welfare in the mind and eliminate any kind of discontentedness because if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you don't know where your next meal is coming from, that can produce a lot of discontentedness in the mind. But if you can save up to a point where you've got a bit of a cushion, that can really help you. But then you would like to make sure it's not so excessive that you're obsessed about this money and the continuation of this money, but you you know, put some aside for a rainy day, but you also look at meeting all your other needs, in, including practicing generosity as well. Any other questions? No more questions. Okay, so I think one more chapter, yeah? This, yeah. So the, the one that we just covered was creating welfare and peacefulness in the present life, and now the Buddha is talking about future lives. You know, how do we practice in such a way to ensure that our future lives are peaceful and we have good welfare. And remember, keep in mind that the Buddha didn't teach that we should aspire for rebirth. His goal and his teachings, what they lead to is they lead to liberation, enlightenment, where you attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy in this life and there is no more rebirth. But he also taught certain things that, hey, if you practice these things, and you happen to not get to enlightenment this life, your future life will have better welfare and more peacefulness. And here, what he taught was accomplishment in confidence, accomplishment in virtuous behavior, accomplishment in generosity, and accomplishment in wisdom. And here, the accomplishment in confidence, he discusses this in multiple places in his teachings, is having confidence in him, being the Buddha, that he is enlightened because during his lifetime, there were multiple people that were teaching. Why would anybody learn with him as a teacher if they didn't have confidence that he was actually enlightened or the perfectly enlightened one? So he talks about you know, having confidence in him will essentially lead to somebody learning these teachings and improve the condition of their mind for future lives, but it also improves it for this life too. And then he talks about accomplishment in virtuous behavior or moral conduct. So by improving our moral conduct, that leads to a better and improved rebirth in future lives. But it also leads to peacefulness in this life too. Then he talks about accomplishment in generosity, essentially practicing where we eliminate selfishness 
living open-handedly, joy and letting go and joyful and giving and sharing. So by practicing generosity, he says, yes, this leads to an improved rebirth for future lives. But I'm sharing with you, it also leads to a better existence in this life too, because you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment. The reason why it leads to a better future life is because you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment in this life. So therefore, there's going to be less of it for you to deal with in a future life. But by eliminating craving, desire, attachment in this life, it's going to lead to more peacefulness in this life too. And then the last one, accomplishment and wisdom. This is where someone's working to learn and practice these teachings to eliminate discontentedness, learning the entire path to enlightenment, to antidote that ignorance or that unknowing of true reality. Wisdom is the antidote to that. So if somebody's practicing to develop and cultivate wisdom, it's going to lead to a better future rebirth, but it's also going to lead to a better existence in this life too. This present life, the mind is going to be in a better condition by acquiring this wisdom. That's why it leads to a better rebirth in the future is because you're improving the condition of your mind in this life. So these are four things that the Buddha says that we should practice and cultivate in order to lead to a future rebirth that is going to be peaceful, but it can also be shared in the same way that these exact same four things are going to lead to a better existence in this present life as well. So any questions on any of these? Teacher David, question. How can you have a better rebirth in your next life? And if you're born a, a human in this life, the probability of being born a human in the subsequent life is very, very rare. How can you have a better um, conditions in your, um, a better rebirth and better conditions in your next life? I, I'm always, uh, I wonder about that. Yeah, so the better conditions would be like, say, for example, we're born into a hostile family where there's lots of anger and maybe there's a lack of resources. So if we're born into, say, another human life in our next life, then if you're practicing these teachings, improving the condition of the mind, then your next rebirth, if it's in the human realm or it's in some other realm like the heavenly realm, it's going to be in a better condition. So there's not as much anger and hostility in your family. There's maybe more access to acquire the necessities of life. So you won't be struggling as much in your next life. There are certain challenges that we've all overcome. I'm sure if I talk to each one of you, your life probably is better now than it was when you were born. So if you were born into a family that was, you know, a little bit not as well off or maybe lacked certain wisdom, what you've done during this life is you've consistently improved the condition of your life through making wiser and wiser decisions, which is leading to a more peaceful life in this life. But that all required a lot of work from wherever you started from in this life, based on the family that you were born into, you've had to overcome a lot of obstacles. So if you are reborn into a human life, having practiced these teachings and you happen to be reborn into a, another human life, then that rebirth in that next new family is going to be better than the rebirth that you experienced in this life. So therefore, you're kind of starting it with you know, better access to things that will be able to help you 
So another way to say that is there'll be less obstacles for you to overcome, to get to enlightenment in any subsequent rebirth because of your practice in this life and having overcome so many obstacles, then your next life, you won't have as many obstacles to overcome. I just uh, was recalling how um, perhaps improbable it is for you to be re- to have a rebirth in the human form. Um, you know that that which we just reviewed today. In fact, uh, you know, just being reborn. But as you say, um, there will be better better conditions in when you are reborn in whatever realm you're re- reborn in. Um, the mind was just stuck in that idea of. Uh, the improbability of being reborn in the human form in the next life. I wouldn't describe it as improbability. The Buddha describes it as being rare, but I wouldn't describe it as being improbable because there certainly are beings that are being reborn into this human realm now that experienced human births in the past. So while it's rare, say you didn't practice these teachings and then someone died it might take 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 years before that being ultimately makes it back to the human world. So it's rare in terms of it will take a really long time, but I wouldn't describe that as being improbable. So it's not like we get kind of like one human birth and that's our chance to attain enlightenment. And if we don't attain enlightenment, then we're kind of doomed forever. That's the way I think about improbability. It's more of now that you've got this rare human birth that took you a lot of gamma to build up to in order to get this human birth. Okay, take advantage of this human birth and learn and practice so that if you are reborn, you'll be reborn in a better condition. But let's just say you weren't practicing and you died in this human birth. You're going to go back into the lower realms of hell, animal and afflicted spirit. But 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 years later, you will ultimately make it back to the human realm at some point and have another experience to be able to attain enlightenment. But here what the Buddha is giving us is the ideal would be that we attain enlightenment in this life. But should we not attain enlightenment in this life, the next best thing that could happen is that we at least practice in this life so that then our future rebirth, whether it's in the human realm or heavenly realm, will be in a better condition than it is when we started here. So that we're constantly improving upon the condition of the consciousness and the mind, getting closer and closer to enlightenment through multiple births. And the Buddha talked about this as part of his rebirth as well, because he had countless rebirths prior to actually becoming the Buddha. And he had multiple human births, multiple human births, before he ever became human to ultimately become a Buddha. So he constantly developed wisdom throughout all of those lives, accumulating into what ultimately became the wisdom that he taught as a Buddha. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, you're welcome. Any other questions on this chapter or any chapters that we've discussed today? No more questions. Okay, so I'll just kind of get out of this and just kind of wrap things up for the class that, you know, this is starting a new book and we're getting into 
uh, some different teachings that we haven't explored before, which is really nice to be able to have these discussions where in the group learning program, you know, there's kind of set chapters and we're discussing that chapter. We're here, we get a lot of variety and a lot of different things to discuss. And like Manal was doing is kind of connecting some of the teachings together and two, and understanding how these teachings either relate or don't relate is really important as part of your practice so that you see the overall picture of the Buddha's teachings, the whole totality of his teachings. Sometimes what the mind wants to do is kind of latch onto one teaching and look at it in isolation. But when you kind of step back and you look at it from a whole totality, you can kind of see how these teachings interrelate. And when you see the whole totality of the teachings, you can see the path more clearly. It's more illuminated for you. So this method of study allows us to do that. So I'm really pleased that we're able to go forward in this program the way that we are. So next week, we're going to be looking at chapters 11 through chapters 20. So if you'd like to read those before class, you can read those, come to class with questions, and we'll read them in class as well. This book is going to be a book that we're in for about three months because there's 124 chapters in this book. So as we go through chapters by chapters, it'll take us about 12 weeks or three months to actually complete the whole book. And by the time we get to the end of this book, we will have covered a vast variety of the words of the Buddha, where that first volume two was almost like a little bit of a warm up. This book is really going to dive into the teachings. And then we have another kind of little book with volume four. And then volume five is another really big book where it's about the first stage of enlightenment. So all of this work that we're doing with these volumes will help build up to volume five, where volume five is all about the first stage of enlightenment. So thank you all for your dedication. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for being willing to read the chapters and volunteering to do that. For those of you guys that I skipped over your chapter that you were planning to read, I apologize for that, but that's a bit of impermanence for you that uh, don't allow the mind to get hooked or clinging or craving to read. So I'm not sure who ended up getting skipped over, but just let it go. No big deal, right? You signed up, you volunteered, you had the intention to practice generosity, but it just didn't happen because of impermanence. So don't allow the mind to become discontent if you had volunteered to read a certain chapter and that didn't happen. Just let it go. And that can be good practice for you that in daily life you're able to do that more. So I'll see you guys either next Saturday to discuss chapters 11 through 20 or perhaps tomorrow in our group learning program where we're going to be discussing the moral conduct section of the Eightfold Path, which is right speech, right action, right livelihood. Or this Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation, and that'll be part two of our four-part series where we're diving into breathing mindfulness meditation. So I'll see you either Sunday, Wednesday, or next Saturday. Have a lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. 
A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.